Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the Special Needs Survival Podcast. Well, I'm super excited. There are so many things going on in September. I can't even begin to describe all of them to you, but I'm going to try. First and foremost, I get back here to Massachusetts from um, spending some time in North Carolina where it was warm and sunny. And if we had a rain shower, it lasted like an hour. Well, it's been pouring since I got here 24 hours later. <laughs> pouring. Um, so fall has, you know, pronounced itself here in Massachusetts. Uh, it's 25 degrees cooler today than it is in North Carolina. And you know what? I love it. I love it because it brings me back to everything that I used to love about fall. The changing seasons are beautiful for so many reasons. Um, but this month is all about school, right? It's all about school preparation and then integration and then adjustments and, um, you know, kind of making our way and setting things up for the whole year. So every year in our family, there would be a couple weeks of really just running around and trying to be flexible and dealing with new staff and new caregivers and um, new school personnel. And it was always uh, it was always um, scary, uh, if I'm being truthful and admitting to myself how I really felt. Uh, it was always a bit topsy-turvy. And I think, you know, the main thing that I always felt was out of control. How can I stay in control of this process, in control of what's happening with both my girls and in setting themselves up for setting themselves up and our family up for success. So um, in thinking about all of this, one of the one of the aligning principles of my life is create the things you wish existed. I've been talking about this on this podcast and on my circle of care on Facebook and on all my social media for a while now. Create the things you wish existed is just the theme of my life. It started many years ago. I always wanted to be an attorney. And when I became an attorney, I wanted to be a civil rights attorney. So um, because Elizabeth was born before I really got to start practicing, I jumped right into advocacy, planning, and all things disability, special needs. So after practicing very, very part-time on my own for a little bit, I moved to a very reputable firm. And then over the next couple of years, I jumped around a bit. So three firms and four years later, I decided that, you know, it was just not a good fit for me. To, to be in a firm. For one thing, the things that I do are so narrow and focused, and they were just a small part of what each of the firms were doing. 
And some of the things that I was doing, they weren't interested in at all, namely the advocacy piece. They wanted more transactional work that could be, you know, completed, build, completed, build, completed, build. And my philosophy was to really impact our community and people's lives. And that requires a long-term commitment to people, a long process, a long growth trend with them, and a long connection. And that just wasn't available to me in the current framework that we had. So I created something new, Special Needs Law Group. I know the name doesn't resonate with everybody, but Disability Law Group was way too close to the Disability Law Center of Boston, and I did not want to be confused with them. So uh, Special Needs Law Group was born. Ten years ago, this past month, was our anniversary. So exciting. Who knew? Who knew we were going to make it? And also through the pandemic, holy moly, that was a challenge. There were some moments there when I, when I thought we were going to have to close. But here we are, 10 years, and we've grown and we have really uh, made an impact in our community and also have a, a, a nice footprint here. But that wasn't enough for me. Um, solving people's legal problems and helping them plan for the future was awesome and totally what I wanted to be doing. But I recognized pretty quickly that not everybody could afford a lawyer. Not everybody needed a lawyer. What they needed was information, resources, advocacy, and help with planning. It doesn't take a lawyer to do that. Lawyers are mostly reactionary and take action. It's not the same as what it takes to plan a life. So then I started creating other new things. <laughs> I created uh, the Parenting Impossible podcast as another way, free resource to give information, support, and, and resources out there in the community to share our stories, to bring forward some experts and some um, discussion on important topics. I also, uh, just before that, had published my book, Butterflies and Second Chances, a mom's memoir of love and loss. And I know for many of you who've been listening a long time, you know all of this, but I'm going to keep going through it. So that book was a chronicle of my life with Elizabeth and her life. And um, as most of you know, she passed away in 2013 at age 17 from her mitochondrial disease. I also soon thereafter started a Facebook group called Circle of Care. And this group was open to everybody connected to the disability community. Whether you are a person with a disability, you are a caregiver or a supporter of a person with a disability, um, an expert or an advocate or a professional in the disability community, or whether you are an ally to the disability community. Doesn't matter what the diagnosis is, doesn't matter your age, doesn't matter what you're seeking, we're here for you. So this group is really going strong. Again, another free resource 
Um, you must be a member, but membership is free. And it is um, a place where we're doing um, Facebook live events, which I have now just started um, recording in advance and posting to the page. And then right before the pandemic started in early 2020, I opened Special Needs Family Services, my second company. And that company was to take some of the work that we were doing in the law firm out of the law firm. For example, acting as trustee, agent under power of attorney, guardian, conservator, and other roles. And those agency roles are stepping into a position in someone's circle of care where they needed additional support. In addition to that, we do case management as well. And that case management is um, very focused and specialized. So special needs family services was born, a pandemic hits, slow growth, slow recovery, but we're here and doing great, growing by leaps and bounds. And then I started thinking further about this idea of reaching people throughout the country. I am a frequent lecturer all over Massachusetts and around the country. And I sit on a couple of national committees and boards. So I wanted to find another way to continue to share information and support. But what I also wanted to do was encourage the people that I talk to, to talk to each other and create this peer group, this cohort, if you will, this cohort of, of folks that you can call on as you're on your journey. So I created some on-demand courses so that people can, at an affordable price, get the information that they need and get familiar with the process of estate planning with special needs trusts, transition planning, and also special needs trust administration. So we started with transition planning because truly every week I meet with people and we go through the same questions and concerns not that every family isn't different and individual, of course they are, but there's these running themes through every family's questions. And I love working individually with families, but it really occurred to me that I could meet the needs of more people if I brought people into a you know, so-called room in a Zoom meeting and gave all the same information at once to a large group of people. So I started the transition planning masterclass and uh, we did in July and early August, we did a beta test with uh, some folks in the disability community that I know, and it was great. I got so much great feedback. We adjusted the course and the masterclass program, the coaching program, and our next cohort starts on September 14th. And I broke it up into two pieces based on the information that I got from this beta test group. We have one group just for professionals that meets on Wednesdays starting the 14th at 1 p.m. That's 1 p.m. Eastern time. And a cohort for anybody 
particularly disabled individuals, family members, caregivers, et cetera. And that is at 7 p.m. on Wednesdays, starting the 14th. It runs for eight classes. And if you are a disabled youth preparing for an adult life or parents planning and advocating for your child's life, or you're a next generation of caregivers, advocates, and supporters, maybe um, you're an adult disabled individual who needs a plan for themselves. And maybe you're a professional or an ally in the disability community. These this masterclass and this coaching program is, is really for you. And I am hoping that we sweep a wide audience so that people can get so much out of it. I hope that you'll be able to get the information you need in one place, that you'll be able to write down your plan and action steps with a timeline, gather a team to support this transition process called your circle of care, and move from a fractured approach to a true person-centered plan. There's so many things I wish for this program, but in order for all of those things to come true, I need you to join us. So please join us. If you're in the thick of working with your student or um, if you are working on some caregiver issues yourself, this is the time, come and join us. I will have in the show notes, a link where you can go to our teachable school and you can sign up. There'll be a discounted program um, code so that everybody hearing it from this podcast will get a fantastic price. Okay. Now, on that same note, I had a wonderful interview for the podcast with Alana Robinson. Her company is Uncommon Sense Parenting. And she, she really um, helped me. She has a wonderful approach to, you know, the typical like kids misbehavior. And we talked about things like why your kids won't listen unless you yell. Oh my gosh, guys, I am a yeller and I am hoping to turn this around. But the key thing that we talked about was that your child or your adult child cannot, cannot behave well unless they're calm. And that means you have to be calm. And what does this mean for our parenting? It's not about different parenting styles. This is a theme that runs through all parenting decisions. We talked about the three mistakes that parents make that cause misbehavior and how to avoid these pitfalls. What, what can we do next? And um, we talked a little bit about outdoor play, which was so cool. I love that. And the amazing benefits that it has to your child's mind and soul. So I hope you're going to love this interview as much as I did. Please let me know. Definitely go to our um, our um, Apple site and give us a rating and a great review. And please DM me and let me know if you've got any ideas for topics in the future, if you love this podcast, or if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. So here we go. Today on the show, we have the 
funny and wonderful Alana Robinson, who I am so excited to talk to. When I was checking out her stuff, I was just scratching my head saying, why did I not know her when my kids were little? Because I really needed her. Welcome to the show, Alana. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Annette. So Alana comes from Northern Canada, where the snow gets deep and it gets cold mighty fast. So you have to have a sense of humor to to approach life when you You live in Northern Canada. (laughs) You sure do. So she has a program called Uncommon Sense Parenting. The parentability method is part of that. And it's all about, and I love this from her website, how to get kids to listen and end tantrums without stickers, counting to three, or losing your shit. (laughs) And if you are a parent who is frustrated, exhausted, or overwhelmed, or all three of these things all at once, she has the answers for you. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. I do want you, Alana, to just introduce yourself a little bit. Tell us about yourself, your family, your profession, and how you got onto this topic. Yes, awesome. Thank you again so much for having me. So yeah, I'm Alana Robinson. Um, I am a registered early childhood educator, a former developmental specialist and early interventionist for children who have special needs. And um, that's actually how I got into this. I did early intervention with children with every spectrum of disability for approximately 10 years. Um, I worked mainly with children who are autistic and who have Down syndrome, but I also worked with kids who have CP and medical needs and you know, every, every stripe of child. One of the children I worked with was one of three kids in North America with their specific diagnosis, mm. all the way down to, you know, your run-of-the-mill speech delay. So I've met them all. <laughs> I've seen yeah. all the ways the molds can be broke. Um, and I loved my job. I loved playing with kids and seeing their connections get made, seeing them make that progress, seeing them achieve mm. things that come to typical kids so easily. And I just, I adored my job. Um, And I very quickly ended up specializing in kiddos who have very high needs, who tended to have those more violent and aggressive behaviors. Mm -hmm. Um, I think mainly because I could see beyond the behavior and I didn't take it personally. (laughs) And (laughs) so um, I very quickly, my entire caseload was with kiddos who had been stuck on these behavior humps for months and oftentimes even years where they just couldn't get them past the aggression. And I was a personal point of pride for me to come in and connect with these kids and get them over that hump so that we could then hand them off to somebody else who could continue their journey. Um, Unfortunately, that meant when I got pregnant, I had to stop because getting hit, kicked, shanked and stabbed was no longer on the safe list of things to do. Um, I ended up during my career, I had 14 concussions. So I was very quickly moved off the front line and into parent coaching. And at the time I felt like my life was over. Like I loved my career and my job and the kids that I worked with. And I I think I actually said to my husband, my life is over. Like this, my career has just gone up in smoke. I was so upset. And he was like, you're having a baby. You're not dead. (laughs) 
But I was like, and I wanted a baby so bad. Like I, we'd been trying for years to have my oldest. And so it was this big conflicting emotions. And my agency ended up dumping me into a parent coaching role. And within a couple of months, I was like, this is what I am here to do. This is what (laughs) went from like doomsday to (laughs) this is it. This, This is where I can make a real impact on the world. Because the more I found that parents understood why their kids were doing what they were doing, the bigger gains the child made. And it didn't matter who was working frontline with the child. If the parents really had a firm grasp of how their child's behavior development was working, then once the interventionist left, mom and dad were able to continue implementing those strategies, were able to continue supporting their child at home, and their growth just took off like a rocket. Right. And it made parenting so much easier for them. It made it easier for the whole family to connect. Their entire household calmed down. It was a lot more peaceful and manageable. Mm-hmm. And I just, it made my heart absolutely explode. Um So because I'm Canadian and we get a nice long maternity leave, I was off for 15 months with my oldest. And um, during that time, there was a lot of political stuff that went on. And that Mm -hmm. resulted in parents who had previously been receiving parent coaching, getting it taken away, unfortunately. And a lot of these parents saw the value in it and they wanted to continue with their coaching, but they weren't being offered to them anymore through their socialized services. And so I got to take them on as private clients. And by the time my maternity leave was over, I had a long enough wait list that I didn't need to go back to my job with the agency. I just continued going privately. And now I've been doing this for coming up on eight years. And I have clients all that over the world. <laughs> just like my sign says. Exactly. The things you wish existed. Exactly. Exactly. And it's just, it fills my heart. I get to connect with parents all over the English speaking world and really support them in being the experts on their own kids. Because if mom and dad can't be the expert on their kid, who can? I saw you had people from UK and Canada and the US and all over the place who had given you such a thumbs up for your programs. That's really exciting. You're really reaching a huge, huge population. I love it. I absolutely love it. And it's so neat for me to see how, yes, we all live in these very different systems and these systems are all designed very differently, but there's so much common ground. There are so many common themes to them. And I love that experience of getting thrown into like recently I was on a call with a client in Singapore. I have no experience with the Singaporean education system whatsoever, but Mm -hmm. it was so much fun to get to sit down with her and her child's teacher and really figure out how we were going to implement these very foundational concepts in a completely new system. And I love that that gives me the breadth of experience that I can really drop into anybody's situation and be like, you know, Yes, this is different from what I'm used to, but we've done this in, in you know, 14 other countries. We can do right. this here for you too. Right, because, you know, our kiddos, while they're not all the same, they do have these running themes for yeah. sure. We're all human, right? And there's yeah. these basic Well, basic especially concepts. the parents. I mean, the yeah. parents all have the same need, which is to understand their kid and to have good tools. Yes, I mean, that's, exactly. That's what we all need. You know, we can't rely on the school system to do it for us because no. as you know anytime that school gets interrupted it's back up, back to us 
So yeah. I was so impressed with a lot of your, um, you know, free, you know, here's some free advice. Here's my blogs. Here's my podcast here. Here's our, our, you know, live group, which you just told me you're not doing live anymore, but that's okay. <laughs> um, and, you know, so there's all of this free stuff out there because you really are trying to get the resources and support out to families. And if they need and want more, you're there to create that for them in a coaching program. Exactly. So lovely. So your podcast, The Mudroom, um, really had some just amazing topics. And plus they're short. They're like these little 10 minute bites, which you can listen to when you're folding laundry or driving a kiddo somewhere because we're always in the car driving somebody somewhere mm-hmm. and, you know, doing the dishes or, or any other such thing. So I love that. And the topics I, I listened to a few of them and, and I was really intrigued. You know, you went from a topic of like interrupting to trauma bonding and, you know, a heavy topic of answering tough questions for kiddos, especially little kiddos. There's so much there and it really runs the gamut. So where do you get your ideas for, you know, how, how, what topics to bring to the podcast? They're all questions that I see in my parenting posse Facebook group, basically. Um, I, we have a group of over 10,000 parents on Facebook. And when I don't know what to talk about, I go and I just start scrolling and I, I find it kind of funny and I don't know if this is like, you know, there's a design to everything wooey or if it's just that these issues tend to come in waves yeah. for parents, but yeah. there does tend to be these waves, these groups of concepts or these groups of questions that tend to come through. And so like right now in both the parenting posse and in parentability, people are getting ready to go back to school or they are back to school. And so we're all dealing with the restraint collapse and we're all dealing with the anticipation and the fear and the transitions and the new expectations and all of that. Right. So that's when that's coming up, that's what I'll talk about. Um, Oftentimes I'll have somebody ask a question that makes me go, I hadn't thought of it from that angle before. Um, And when I think it through, I have a very clear answer for it. Um, But the way that the question was answered made me think of a a different way to flesh that question out. And so often we'll go back and we'll revisit topics that we've already talked about just from a different angle so that we can have a more full view of our child's development and of our child's concerns. Um, A lot of the time, I'll just get the same question in slightly different variations 15 times in a row. And I personally hate repeating myself. It drives me bananas. And so if I've answered the same question five times in a week, I'm like, all right, I'm going to record this. And that way I can (laughs) can hand people the answer in a nice little package that's all pre-prepared for them. Um, So it's not super scientific, but... I like it because it allows me to be really responsive to the concerns that parents have right now. Mm -hmm. That's really great. I'm wondering how do you manage a group of 10,000 people and make sure that you're answering questions and are they answering each other's questions? Is it that peer support? That's great. Yeah. It's parenting posse is very much peer support. Um, We are very strict. I have a 
group of moderators who have been with me since the beginning, who know me, know my philosophy, have worked with me for a really long time, and we do not tolerate bullshit well. (laughs) So they all have very heavy band hammers, um, and the kind of like unofficial mod motto is no assholes so we we moderate it very very closely we have very strict rules we have very clear boundaries um and it's not like the typical facebook group mommy free for all we're there the group is there to talk about how we are framing behavior how we're looking at children's behavior and so it's very easy when you notice something that's not on that line to just get rid of it. (laughs) And um, we're very, we'd like to try and keep the focus fairly straightforward and narrow so that parents are getting distracted by all of this noise because there's enough of that on the internet. Sure. Oh God. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. Well, let's talk about a couple of topics that I must, must, must ask you about. Okay. First of all, I'm really, really embarrassed to say this, but I am a yeller and I have been a yeller all my life and I still yell. <laughs> my 21 year old is has just gotten back to college and she <laughs> drives me nuts, nuts. And I'm still yelling. So your topic about why your children won't listen unless you yell I really want to talk to you about this. So tell me another way that I can approach (laughs) this without raising my voice because nothing seems to get through. So the first thing you have to know about yelling is that there's a purpose behind it, right? We yell when we're overwhelmed or when we don't feel like we're being heard. And that's a very specific function of our nervous system. Mm -hmm. Um, So We have these, I use the triune brain model, which if you're not familiar with it, is basically breaks the brain into three distinct parts. The neocortex, which is that top layer of our brain that we are not born with functioning, but when we get born, has this nice little rush of hormones and starts to wire all up. Dr. Siegel calls it the upstairs brain. Dr. Shanker calls it the blue brain. Um, And that's where our knowledge, our reason, our learning, our language, all of that good stuff that makes us like civilized human beings, that's where that all lives. And then we have our limbic system, which is responsible for emotions, memory, and safety. That's it. That's all. It has no reason. It has no knowledge. It has no language. Um, It comes out of the box ready to go. It's wired for sound. And then we have our brain stem, our brown brain, um, often called the reptilian brain. And that's a very apt name because it only has instinct. It has no logic. It has no reason. It has no language. It has no memories or emotions. Its sole job is to keep us safe. And, you know, you think of an alligator. If you poke an alligator with a stick, it's going to snap at that stick. It doesn't stop to wait to see if that's its own tail or (laughs) its offspring or a stick. It's just like, "Mm, something's attacking and I'm going to attack back, right? So it's very, very reactive. So when we yell, what tends to happen is our nervous system gets all alert because something is frustrating us. Something is making us feel unsafe. And when we don't feel safe, our brain goes, "Uh uh-oh, we We can't protect ourselves if we keep doing all of this thinking and talking and reasoning and 
you know, all of the the civilized human being stuff that is awesome, but isn't actually keeping us alive. And so the brain actually just stops sending oxygenated, oxygenated, oh my goodness, that word. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I can say it so easily and other times my mouth is like the O is not going to (laughs) happen. So it stops sending oxygenated blood up to our brain, up to our neocortex, which means it really can't function. It's getting just enough to keep it alive, but all of the fun stuff that it does can't work. So, and then it takes all of those resources and it sends it to our limbic system because our limbic system's job is to detect danger and to keep us safe. And so when we get frustrated, when we get overwhelmed, when we're feeling not safe, our brain goes, "Mm, we can't keep ourselves safe. We're going to hoard all of this energy to the limbic system. And then the limbic system only has emotions, memories, and safety. That's all it has. So when we feel unsafe, our nervous system is going to do the fastest thing it can do to make us safe. And oftentimes, especially when we're dealing with children, that is to yell Mm. because it makes us louder than them. It gives us some nice sensory input, some nice auditory input. It drowns out the other auditory input. It audio filters for us. And it is a very easy way to reduce the threat very quickly. Yeah. So when we recognize that as like the red flag, that need to yell as being like, "Mm, I'm dysregulated. My nervous system is activated. I don't feel safe right now. Once you can intellectually connect those two indicators, then it's a lot easier to stop yelling because you start noticing the earlier indicators of getting to that state. So, and it's the same thing for our kids. When they're yelling and they're crying and they're freaking out, it's because their brain perceives that action, the yelling, the crying, the freaking out to be the fastest route back to safety. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot easier than to be like, hey, we both don't feel safe. How can I create safety for us? How can I calm our nervous system down? So what I'm always telling my clients is recognizing it is the first step. If you can't recognize that you're getting dysregulated, you can't re-regulate yourself because that is something that you have to consciously think about. Once you're like, okay, I feel like I'm going to yell. I'm going to lose my shit on you, child. (laughs) (laughs) which is a thought I have very frequently where I'm like, "Mm, I am reaching the end of my rope. Well, now the priority is not to get my child to stop doing whatever it is that they're doing that is dysregulating me. My priority is to regulate myself. And that changes the priority, right? Because now you go from, I need you to stop lying on the floor, screaming, kicking, crying, whatever it is that they're doing that is upsetting you, ignoring you, um, (laughs) to... I need to go calm down and then I can deal with the situation. Yeah. And once you get into that habit of not dealing with children, when you're dysregulated, it makes the air go right out of the situation because you're no longer allowing yourself to match their resonance. Uh The Uh limbic system gives off brain waves that are much like sound light waves or light waves. Um, but it's the limbic system. It's not telepathy. Mm. So it has no language. It just, that's how, like, when you walk into a room, you can pick out like, okay, you're having a really shit day and you are very self-important and wow, you're really happy. Like you start 
sensing other people's emotions, that's because mm-hmm. you're picking up on their resonance. Now, our children connect to our resonance much faster than they do anybody else, because especially if you're a biological parent, your resonance is the first one they attuned to. It's kind of yeah. like a Bluetooth hookup. You know, like when you get in your car, your phone automatically connects to your car. If you get in somebody mm-hmm. else's car, it will also connect to their car. It's just going to take a lot longer. Right. right? So our children pick up on our resonance very quickly because in evolutionary terms, back in the day, we're living in caves. A tiger walks into the cave. You want the people around you to pick up on your arousal so that you don't have to be like, yo, tiger. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. We want to alert the people around us just by becoming alert ourselves. So when we get dysregulated, our child has zero hope in hell of calming down. Right. And once you recognize that, that you are the catalyst, that you can only really control yourself. And that old adage of, you know, put your own oxygen mask on first is really true. (laughs) Then, as I said, you go and your priority, your wellness, your ability to be regulated suddenly becomes the priority, not your child's. I never thought about it that way. Never. And most people don't, right? Because the old telos, the old paradigm is control the child and then I'll control myself. Right. And that's or, what's been done for 200 years. You don't even necessarily think that you have to control yourself. No, exactly. That's, and that's how it's been done for 200 years. The child's the problem, not me. Yeah. And this isn't to shame parents into being like, oh my God, it's all my fault. No, if it's your fault, it's also your solution. Oh, everything's our fault though. Right. <laughs> But it's, oh, it's it's like it means within your control. Right. right? right. And That's so, the most important thing, regaining the control. Regaining the control. And I think that or giving your space to lose control is often the problem. Like I'm a hitter. My instinct when I feel unsafe is to smack the shit out of whatever it is that is making me feel unsafe, whether that's, you know, anything. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that would usually result in a felony. So <laughs> instead, and then so usually what that would do is I'm trying to suppress my needs, the regulation needs I have in order to improve or to get them to stop what I perceive they're doing to dysregulate me. And that means you yell, right? That's the shortest right. point from A to B. Pay attention to me. Exactly. Pay attention to me. And then what you're doing. And then once you feel so unsafe that you can't even vocalize, then I'm going to correct you and whatever it is. Right. But if my focus is now on keeping myself calm so that my child can calm down, if I feel like I'm going to hit something instead of suppressing that need, I don't, instead of hitting my child, I go and I hit a punching bag. Mm. I give myself permission to go and take care of my needs that are being masked by yelling so that when I come back, I can be like, okay, I actually have control of my body now. (laughs) I can actually be the calm, supportive person that you need me to be to help you navigate these emotions. And yes, sometimes that means our child is dysregulated or upset for longer. Right. But because, but also you can't always walk away from the situation. You can't always walk away. No. And sometimes that means you're co-regulating with your child. Like when I had a very young child with me and I felt like I needed to yell or like I needed to hit something, 
that wouldn't always mean that I went and did it by myself. Sometimes I would take the kiddo with me and we would both start hitting the punching bag or we would start mm -hmm. beating up the couch together. Oftentimes kids were very concerned by this at first because they'd never mm -hmm. seen an adult allow themselves to hit something that isn't people or property. Like it's not destroying anything, right. but they'd never seen an adult engage in the behaviors that they are also engaging in, in a constructive and safe way. Mm, interesting. And that's why I, I am so big on facilitation because through not allowing ourselves to regulate ourselves, how our body feels most safe to do so, we're modeling to children that mm, you can't also be trusted. Your body can't be trusted to regulate itself either. Yeah, I know I did a few podcasts and talked about this a little early on in my podcasting career about being a great example for our kids. Our kids are never going to be happy kids if we are not happy adults. They need an adult to see cannot de-escalate an escalated child. And so when we're looking at things from that perspective of regulation first, it makes it a lot easier to, okay, I'm going to calm myself down and then I'm going to calm them down. And once you have a focus like that, once you're able to separate out the concerns at first, yes, it's very clunky because you're learning it, your child's learning it, and it's a whole process. But as you both get more proficient at it, like my kids, if I'm like, I need a break and I'm going to go calm myself down, then I'm going to come deal with you. Oftentimes they're like, mm, mom's taking a break. I should too. And cool. now they're old enough and they're proficient enough at it that they can actually go do that. <laughs> so the not yelling is not a, it's not the linear process that I think a lot of parents think it's going to be. A lot of parents yeah. think that when I say you're not going to yell anymore, that that means suppressing their need to yell. No, if you genuinely need to yell, if that is your first instinct, then by all means go yell, but don't yell at your kid. Right. Go yell into the void in the forest, go yell into a pillow, go into your cellar and close the door and have a good scream. And because say a lot of bad words. <laughs> exactly. Because the thing is, whatever it is, whether it's yelling, hitting, throwing something, kicking something, um, you know, there's all these sensory outputs that our body has that it needs. Whatever your instinct is when you're upset like that, that is what your body perceives as the fastest way to calming down. So why would we stop ourselves from doing that? So I want to switch gears a little bit. And I know we're not here to be judgy, but you have this great um, information tool about the three mistakes that parents make that causes our kids to misbehave. Yeah. Tell us what we're doing that we need to, you know, take a different approach. All right. So there are three mistakes that every parent that I've ever made is making. And the first is being reactive instead of proactive. We're waiting for our kids to fuck up before we teach them what to do, which is not something we do in literally any other area of life. Like we're not like, okay, here, take a spelling test and then we'll teach you how to spell the words. Yeah. Right. We spend some time on instruction and then we put them to the test. But for some reason, that's what we do with behavior. We're like, we're going to throw you into this unusual situation that you've never been in before. We're going to see how you fare. And then we're going to go back and fix the problems. Mm. And that sets kids up for failure. And I know why parents do this because 
for things like math, spelling, teaching them to cook, teaching them to clean their room, all of those more concrete expectations, there's a progression of skills. We know the order of operations. Using math as an example, you know, you teach addition, then you teach subtraction, then you teach multiplication, and then division, and then you get fancy by combining those things in different ways. Parents don't know what the progression of skills is when it comes to behavior. Ah. It's not something that we're taught. So they don't try to proactively address behaviors because they don't know how to. And the only way they know how to address behaviors is to address what's going wrong versus preparing their child to make sure that it goes right. Cool. I like that. All right. What's the second one? Oh, the second one is not collaborating with your kids. And talk to me about that. (laughs) I think, and well, I think, I know parents feel like this is giving away their power because they want to be the authority in the household. They want their kids to listen to them. They want their kids to do what they're told and to be respectful to the adults around them and all of that fun stuff. We all do. But they feel like by collaborating with their kids, that they're telling them that there's wiggle room, that they have space to push back. And so often when kids start to misbehave or have behavior challenges, parents will start to become the heavy because they think that by becoming the heavy, by being more authoritarian, that they're going to assert their power and that the child will learn that they're not in charge, which is something I hear from parents all the time. My parent, my child thinks that they run the household. No, they yeah. don't. You're just not running the household. <laughs> and so they're filling the need. Um, and so parents are, they start to play the heavy and then they get frustrated because it's not actually working. It's actually making the situation worse. Yeah. And now their child feels disrespected, feels unheard, doesn't feel safe. And when we don't feel safe, we can't behave well. Going back mm-hmm. to that triune brain, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a really specific way to collaborate with children. And collaboration does not mean compromise. Right. Right. It doesn't mean that you have to shelf some of your expectations in order to meet their needs. Collaboration, when we're collaborating properly with kids, their needs and our needs are on equal footing. Nobody's needs is above the other, which means if something doesn't meet your needs as a parent, it's not something you're going to do. Right. And this is especially dads get very, very freaked out when I start talking about collaboration because they're like, but I want them to be respectful. I'm like, oh. <laughs> That's like, first of all, let's define what respect means to you because you seem to be using it in a bit of an odd way. Um, But two, okay, so, you know, if you don't want your child to, and I had this with a dad a couple of weeks ago where his son really needed to throw, to regulate, like needed it on a very deep visceral level. It was a sensory need, not a desire. And his father was like, well, I need him to know that he's not allowed to throw things at the windows. And I was like, okay, so we're not going to give him the option to throw things at the windows. And he's like, but if we let him throw anything, then he'll think that it's okay to throw everything. And I was like, in what world? (laughs) Right? Just because you're collaborating doesn't mean that there aren't boundaries. Right. And so we were able to sit down with him and be like, hey, you're having difficulty not throwing shit at the windows. What's up? And we figured out why he was throwing things at the windows. Turns out they make a really cool sound. Yeah. Which was not information his parents had ever thought to look for before. 
But right. Why do you keep throwing heavy things at the windows? Well, because when it doesn't break the window, it makes this really cool funk sound. And when it does break the windows, it makes this really cool glass shattering sound. Okay, so how can we achieve those two goals without breaking windows? And then we brainstormed with him and we came up with different solutions. Now, one of his solutions was just let him break the windows. And I was like, okay, we're going to write it down. But just because we're writing it down doesn't mean it's going to happen. <laughs> doesn't mean that yeah. we're going to be like, yep, that's a solution. It's not a solution because windows are expensive and mom and dad don't want broken glass all over the ground. And, you know, laundry list of reasons why breaking windows is just not something that's available to you. But through that brainstorming process, we came up with some really good alternatives for him, one of which was included in getting him a plexiglass window that doesn't break because it's plexiglass, that he could still get his thunk sound from. And that, mm, okay, you can't be throwing bricks at it, but you can throw really heavy beanbags mm. and put that in a space in your yard where he can throw it. There's no danger of broken glass. He's getting his sensory input, his nice auditory thunk, and it's available to him. So how do you respond to parents who say, this collaboration process takes too long? I have way too many things to do and I can't take the time to sit and make a list with my kid. It's my favorite thing because when parents say that to me, I make them time themselves for dealing with the behavior anyways. Ah, And 90% of parents when I'm like, okay, I want you to get a stopwatch on your phone or whatever. And every time you start dealing with your child's behavior, I want you to start the stopwatch and I want you to write it down. And at the end of the day, I want you to add up all of the minutes that you spent dealing with this today. Mm -hmm. Most parents are spending upwards of six hours a day dealing with their child's behavior struggles. Yikes. Um, right? Like that's almost a full-time job. Yikes. And so I'm like, okay, so if we could reduce that to three hours, you're gaining three hours of time. If we can reduce that to one hour of collaboration, you're gaining seven hours of time, right? Like you're, you're gaining wow. all of this time. So yes, it is very clunky at first. And I think that's what stops a lot of parents is they're like, oh, I have to learn this new process and it's so difficult and it's labor intensive and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yes, the first couple of times you do it, it is going to take a long ass time. I think the longest it's taken me to collaborate on a single solution with a child was 10 months. And that was like conversation after conversation after conversation. We did solve the problem though. And then the next one that we had to solve was a couple of weeks. Children Mm -hmm. don't trust us because we've broken their trust. Mm-hmm. We are constantly imposing our needs, our priorities, our concerns onto them, and we're not listening to theirs. So when yeah. we finally do sit down and say, hey, so why are you throwing bricks at the windows? Mm. They immediately go, this is a trap. Mm-hmm. You are trying to get me in trouble. I, don't, I can't see how. I don't really understand what your game is here. But I'm not going to tell you why I'm throwing bricks at the windows, because every time that I have in the past, you've told me that that's not really what I'm doing. You've told me that I'm wrong. You've told me that it's not allowed. And you haven't given me any alternatives. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to say anything to you that could be used against me, right? Your Miranda rights. Brilliant. (laughs) Brilliant. So we have to get through that initial one. Because after that initial one, like if I pull my eight-year-old in here and I'm like, hey, so this is a difficulty that you're having meeting an expectation I have. What's up? 
he is going to come out and tell me right freaking away what the problem is, why he's having it, and under what circumstances, what he feels that could be a good solution. Like he's just going to verbally vomit it on me because we've been through that process so many times that he's like, "Mm, you're not asking questions to get me in trouble. You're asking questions to solve the problem. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's the old adage of practice makes perfect. Like you never learned how to do anything the -hmm. first time you tried it. So, okay. But I'm on the edge of my seat. What's the third parenting mistake? The third one is telling our children what not to do. And this is what every single parent is doing. Don't hit, don't yell, don't yell at your brother. Don't throw things. Don't, 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 don't. It's all kids hear all day. Mm -hmm. And often they hear it with no instead of stop, which is just a whole semiotics issue. Um, (laughs) Right. We're giving them very confusing directions to begin with, like grammatically incorrect directions. And then we're like, why aren't they listening quickly? Yeah, (laughs) because you're speaking in a way that doesn't make sense. Um, That's a whole other rant. So parents are telling your kids, don't, 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 don't. At what point are we telling them what to do to meet that need? Mm -hmm. And generally it's because parents don't recognize that their child are trying to fulfill needs. Right, right. Which is the theme that's been flowing through this conversation the whole time. Children don't behave in a certain way just for shits and giggles. They do it because there is a need and they don't know how to fulfill that need. So Mm -hmm. they're doing their level best to do it. And when we tell them, no, you're not allowed to throw. No, you're not allowed to bite. No, you're not allowed to hit. No, you're not allowed to run away. They're like, okay, but I have this feeling in my body that won't go away. So how do I get rid of it? You know, this works on older kids too. I'm going to ask her this. After this podcast interview, I have to call my daughter. (laughs) I'm getting some ideas about how to deal with the situation I'm having with her. Yeah, and it works with everybody. My husband's a soldier. He uses this on his lower recruits because oftentimes these guys will come in and they're having like a personal crisis. And he's like, you need to go and regulate yourself before I can even talk to you. Go for a run. Nice. And so they, they go for a run and they come back. And then he's like, all right, now let's talk about it. And he goes through this collaboration process with them to help them solve the problem. It works for everybody. Just how we apply it to little kids is going to look a little different than how we apply it to a teenager or an adult. And so when we tell kids what not to do constantly, and we never teach them what to do, they have, they're forced into a process of elimination. They have to throw spaghetti at the wall and see if it sticks. Once I was actually demonstrating this for our local military family resource center, and I had a bunch of these elite special forces soldiers in the classroom with their wives. And I gave them all the ingredients to bake a cake. Everything they needed was in the room on the table. And I was like, okay, guys, we're going to bake a cake. And they're like, okay. And they're all these like elite high achieving guys were like, give me the directions and I will follow them. Right. Yeah. Because that's what the military teaches you. And so I stood up at the front and I, pulled out my recipe and I was like, do not put your sugar, flour, like blah, 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 blah in the bowl. And then I looked at them all expecting them to comply. And they were all like, and they stared at me and they stared at the ground and or at the table. And they were like, okay, she said not to put this list of things in, which leaves what? And they then had to figure out what needed to go into the bowl. Yeah, And it took them, like, these are, as I said, very high-achieving, well-trained men. And they were all frozen. They didn't know what to do. And then I gave them a few seconds, and I was like, okay, 
Now, take these five ingredients and put them to the side. And they were like, okay, and they put them to the side. And they said, take all the other ingredients and fold this into that. And they start going through more lists of what not to do. Mm-hmm. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do. And at one point, this like the head of the squad, um, he got so frustrated with me. He took everything, he dumped it into the bowl, whisked it up and said, there. And I was like, all right, put it in a pan and let's throw it in the oven and see if it turned out. Spoiler alert, it did not turn out. No, I would not think it would. It was just a soupy, cakey, floury mess. It was disgusting. And I was like, okay, this is what we do to kids all the time. Don't hit, don't throw. We never tell them what to do. And that means that they have to try and figure it out. And in order to try and figure it out, they have to throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. They have to go through a process of elimination. But what we see that process of elimination as is boundary pushing, defiance, Mm -hmm. not listening, ignoring us. And it's really just kids trying to figure out what the hell we want them to do. Yeah. So discipline, which the root word of discipline is disciple. And a disciple is a student, a learner. If you really want to get into languages, the root word of apprentice is apprendi in French, which means to learn. To discipline someone is to teach them. That is the meaning of that word. And we're not teaching our kids. We're just putting roadblocks in their way. Mm -hmm. So when you focus on, okay, you're not doing what I want you to do. Have I shown you what to do in detail? (laughs) Yeah, that that's brilliant. I mean, so many of us are just doing things by rote also that we're not taking that's what, stuff. That's how we were taught, right? That's what our yeah. parents did to us. Don't do this. And then we just had to kind of figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so we expect that our children will do the same thing. Um, wow. My son, my, my youngest son just recently turned six and we had eight six-year-olds and five eight-year-olds here <laughs> for a birthday wow party. it was a lot of kids um and I had a, it rented a big giant bouncy castle and before I let them on the bouncy castle I was standing in the door of the bouncy castle and I was like hey everybody eyes on me and everybody stopped and looked at me and I was like okay so when we get in the bouncy castle we're going to give each other space we're going to keep our hands to ourselves We're going to go down the slide and move our butts out of the way immediately. And I started telling them all of the things that I expected them to do in the bouncy castle. And there was a couple other moms there and they were like, they're not going to listen to you. Like they're, and in fact, before Mm -hmm. they even got on, they were like, you're brave because these things are always a freaking disaster. Yeah. Yeah. And then I made them repeat the whole list back to me and said, someone's in your face. What do you do? We said, ask them to back up. Right. We asked them to back up. If somebody hits you, what do you say? Ouch, you hurt me. And if you hurt somebody, what do you say? I'm sorry. And so we went through like all of the expectations of what to do. I Mm. had one incident in three hours. One. Mm. And all of these moms were like, that was the best, like the calmest birthday party I've ever been at. I said, because I didn't say don't run, don't kick, don't, 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 don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I told them specifically what they were expected to do. I front loaded them with the information they needed to handle difficult situations that I knew was going to arise because it's a bouncy castle and it's inevitable. Somebody's going yeah, to yeah. get bounced off of thing, something and there, they're going to There will be blood. Else. 
there yeah. will be tears. Exactly. There's going, at some point, somebody's going to hit somebody else. It's inevitable, whether they meant to or not. So I might as well front them, them with the information of what to do when that situation happens. Yeah. Yeah. And as a result, I had one incident and that incident, it was a fairly severe incident, but again, it wasn't an intentional incident. It was that I had two upset kids. One kid had bounced funny off of a wall and hit the other kid in the face with his foot. And once, and then, you know, we pulled them off, we calmed them down. And then once they were calm, we were like, Hey, what happened? How can we make this better? Yeah. And they, they fixed it themselves. I just, just like, Hey, okay. Now that we're calm, let's talk about what happened. And the two of them, you hit me. I know I didn't mean to hit you. I bounced funny. Mm. Okay. Thank you. They gave each other a hug and they got back on the bounce again. <laughs> so, because that's then they- facilitation. Right? That's facilitation. That's, that's what you're talking focusing about. Focusing on regulation first. If I tried to facilitate that when they were still both crying and freaking the fuck out because one of them had a sore mouth and the other one had a sore foot, they would have just screamed at each other and we never yeah, would have yeah. gotten anywhere. So it's, Okay, but that leads into our next thing, Alana. <laughs> you love to talk about outdoor play and how important a role it plays and why they need to be doing it without parents. So talk to me about that. And we are like, so running out of time. So I have to speed <laughs> you up a little bit because I can talk all day about this stuff. Oh, so, me too. Outdoor play. Why is it so critical? Because there are no rules outside or there are very minimal rules outside. Children spend far too much time indoors. and People like to blame it on screens and iPads and all of that. But Inside, we have, even when they're playing with analog toys, there are so many rules. Analog toys are mostly designed by adults to perform a very specific function. They're Mm -hmm. more entertainment devices than they are true toys. You know, we can't throw things inside. We can't run. We can't be too loud because mom's working next door. Blah, 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 blah. All the list of things. We take our kids outside and we remove all of those restrictions, we actually allow children's imaginations to expand and explore. And it's in that kind of kind of lawless play that executive functioning develops. And executive functioning skills are the tools that our brain used to do literally everything. Mm-hmm. And that's where the deficit that I'm seeing mostly with kids is, is that they're not getting opportunities to practice using their executive functioning skills. And as you said, practice makes perfect. Mm-hmm. And so then the only opportunities they have to use their executive functioning skills are in those interpersonal interactions or in the school or in an after school program where they have to be on an alert and it's kind of do or die. Yeah. Yeah. Do it successfully or you don't. And if you don't, everyone's going to notice. So there's no opportunity to fail safe. And there's no opportunity to actually practice. And if Mm -hmm. you're on stage where everybody's looking at you and you do or die, then generally we will go into that red brain state because Mm -hmm. we don't feel safe. And if we're doing something when we're in red brain, we're not learning from it. So then the deficits Mm -hmm. just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Outside is also a perfectly balanced sensory environment. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. Well, I mean, sometimes it's too hot or too cold, but generally (laughs) we can adjust that with our clothing. Um, You know, there's, there's not too much visual stimulation. There's not too much auditory stimulation. When we're in nature, it is a very calming experience for our nervous system. It's designed for us. 
And so generally, even kids, I've had kids who are like, you know, I get their case file and their previous developmental specialist is like, good freaking luck. This kid is mm. never calm. And I'm like, okay, we're going to spend our first couple of weeks at the park. And the parents are freaking out. They're like, he's going to run away on you. He's going to, mm-hmm. we're going to go. We're going to find a nice park, not like a toy park that has like play structures, like a field or a forest park. And we're going to spend our first couple of weeks in the park. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, I am able to teach that child how to calm down fairly quickly because all of the competing demands, all of the sensory input, all mm. of the rules and regulations have been removed and they can just allow their nervous system to connect with nature and chill out. And the problem with regulation is that when you become habituated to being dysregulated, being regulated starts to feel unsafe, starts to feel unfamiliar, right? If I'm not on alert all the time, I'm going to die. So why do you say though, that it needs to be done without parents? Because we are hovers and we insert Mm. ourselves into children's play and we distract them. Okay. When children are playing, they go into a flow state, often what's called a play state, where time and all the demands kind of flow away. And I'm sure you've had this happen too, where you kind of get into a project and then you look up and you're like, holy shit, it's four o'clock. Mm-hmm right? Because you were into it and time and space just fell away and you were able to just get really into the flow of doing the work and time just disappeared. Yeah. And that's what happens when children are doing really good brain building play. That's the state that they're in. But then we come in with all of our adult priorities and all our adult ideas. And we're like, Ooh, do it that way. Ooh, do this. Mm, That's not going to work. And we start micromanaging their play. Yeah. Yeah. They can't get into that deep flow state, which means they're just kind of watching us play, watching us micromanage them, which means they don't Uh get all of those brain building benefits. Mm-hmm. And they never actually allow themselves. Like there was a study that was done, I think it was in 1997, where they set some kids outside and the control group, they just sent them out to play. And the other group, they told them that their parents were coming to get them in 10 minutes. The kids who were just sent out to play got into play almost immediately and stayed that way for a good couple of hours. The kids who had been told their parents were coming to get them, they sat and waited for hours. Wow. They were anticipating being interrupted. And so our kids Fascinating. need, they need that time away from us. We do not need to be in our children's face all the time. And in fact, by doing that, we're kind of communicating that to them that their innate knowledge is invalid, that we yeah. can always do it better than them. We rob them of that opportunity yeah. to discover things. Right. So now, and when I say they need to be alone, I don't mean like you have to send them off into the woods and like be like, okay, if you don't call right, like yeah. I'm talking about sending them out in the backyard while you watch through the window, right? Or wow. you're sitting at a cha- table and chair and you're maybe working outside on your laptop and they're playing by themselves. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be complete separation, but you need to not be involved in their play 24 7. Mm. Well, uh- I can't believe how much time has gone by. This has been such a great interview. I've learned so much. 
this is one of the blessings of doing this podcast is that I get to learn about things that I'm interested in. So I get to interview all these really cool people who are so smart and knowledgeable. So I have to close our interview today, but given that we are talking about such a tough subject, which is children's behavior, and there's mm -hmm. so much conflicting information out there, and you know it, you know that's true, yes. then what one thing would you tell our parents right now, just the first tip that you can give them so they can get started on the right path? Come first, discipline second. Okay. Always. Always. Calm always first, always. discipline second. Calm first, it. discipline second. If you are not calm and your child is not calm, you might as well go discipline a brick wall. Okay. Because that's about, about as much impact as you're going to have. Right. So, because they can't listen. Okay. Because they can't listen. Come first, yeah. discipline second. Oh, I can't thank you enough. This has been so great. So folks, listeners, you need to check out the mudroom, the podcast. It's in these really great little digestible bites. Love the information. It's fantastic. Go ahead and check out the blog. And absolutely, if you are feeling like you need more support, then she's the gal for you. Uncommon Sense Parenting and her parentability method. Because as she says in the sign behind her, it used to take a village. Now it now takes, it takes a posse. posse. Yeah. So join the parent posse and see what it's all about. Thank you so much, Lana. I cannot believe that we spent, you know, almost an hour talking about this stuff, but so important. So Thank important. You so because, much for having me. Oh my gosh. So fun. Thank you. I have a million questions. I'm going to write to you and ask you Sounds about <laughs> Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.